is Nicole Pictures and you are listening to the Reasonable Woman podcast, a legal podcast for all my fellow legal nerds out there. It has been a long time. It's been a very long time. Um, I once more apologise for my absence. It has been pretty busy over here. I have moved house, so I now live in a different city in Finland and all other sorts of things which I shan't bore you guys with uh, in this episode. Um, I am actually in the countryside in Finland right now. Um, My partner and I have left the city uh, probably for the next one week or two due to a certain pandemic that's uh, flying around the world. And what better place to record and talk about law than in the countryside? So I wrote this next piece that I'm about to talk about uh, originally for LinkedIn, but I really did want to talk about it here. So as I'm sure you've all guessed from the title, I'm going to be talking about legal ethics and uh, its place in the legal profession at the moment. Other law students, I'm sure, would probably say the same. In the UK, we're not really taught about legal ethics, kind of, at all. And it's I've always been curious in it. Uh, I really do enjoy legal philosophy and legal theory and things like that. And while legal ethics is not necessarily philosophy, it does touch upon it uh, a little bit. And yeah, so that's what I'm going to be talking about today. I'm not going to give you a little introduction as to what it's going to be about, because this is basically, uh, yeah, in an article form. So you'll catch on pretty quickly. Yeah, so let's get cracking. As always, I'd like to remind you that the information contained in this podcast is general in nature and is provided for solely educational purposes. Any reliance on the information provided in this podcast is done at your own risk, so don't do it. Right, okay. Legal ethics and the profession. How can we best support our lawyers and fellow legal professionals? I recently listened to a Lawyer to Lawyer podcast episode featuring Deborah L. Rode Deborah, Deborah, Deborah L. Road and Scott Cummings, where they explored legal ethics in today's world and what lawyers can do to maintain the reputation of the profession. I really must commend uh, this podcast. It's it's really really good. Um, it's a legal podcast that talks about all kind of legal topics, like gender inequality in law firms, to space law, and yeah, what I'm talking about today, legal ethics. So the two respective experts gave thought-provoking insight into today's legal ethics and what the regulation of legal professional conduct currently entails and what it lacks. At the end of the episode, what I ended up musing over most was how can we best support our lawyers, not just to produce the best possible professional legal service, but also to support the people behind the profession. Legal ethics defines the minimum standard of appropriate conduct within the legal profession, which, due to the centrality of the profession, is vital for it to be set at the highest possible standard. According to Duke Law, at the core of issues of legal ethics are the rules governing conduct of lawyers and judges that are adopted at each state. US legal ethics rules are, quote, based on model rules adopted by the American Bar Association, with each state bar association having some mechanism for enforcing rules through disciplinary proceedings and through the issuance of opinion letters of ethical issues submitted to it. But the current system contains multiple flaws. As pointed out by Rode, it becomes lawyers regulating lawyers, with low public interest and participation in the opinion letters. Lay people not only do not know what the current issues are, but they also have no accessible means of finding out. Enforcement of provisions in the US is problematic in itself, as enforcement is controlled by the bar associations and agencies aligned with state interest. Then, when it comes to the actual drafting of the rules, there is no real labour representation. 
The policy behind the regulation of legal ethics is essentially to protect clients and to hold lawyers to the highest possible standard. I'd be absolutely remiss to neglect mentioning the following passage regarding the duty to clients, although admittedly it does contain a doctrine that advocates have relied upon to sustain dishonest practice and defences. In 1820, Lord Brougham, I believe he's called, while defending Queen Caroline against George IV's bill for divorce, stated, An advocate, by the sacred duty which he owes his client, knows in the discharge of that office but one person in the world, that client and none other. To save that client at all expedient means, to protect that client at all hazards and cost to all others, and among others to himself, is the highest and most unquestioned of his duties, and he must not regard the alarm, the suffering, the torment, the destruction which he may bring upon any other. I think I read somewhere that essentially he was actually threatening the king, that he would expose the king's affairs uh, to the court, and obviously that would affect the king a lot, so pretty hardcore. Curiously, the dictum has survived over a hundred years, despite its implications of the propriety of lawyers' misconduct. A quote which is far more reasonable than this one comes from G. Sharwood's influential essay on professional ethics, which he published in 1907. The responsibilities, legal and moral, of the lawyer arise from his relations to the court, to his professional brethren and to his client. Cummings explains that the most common ethical violations are lawyer neglect and financial abuse, the former including incidents such as failing to file motions, missing deadlines, etc., and the latter including overcharging for services and misappropriating client funds. A fundamental flaw in identifying unethical misconduct is that for the client, there is a risk of relying on a service which is difficult for them to judge, as they may not have the adequate perspective to assess a lawyer's competence. What I personally found particularly interesting in this segment of the episode was that ethical misconduct in these types of violations is not evenly distributed. In fact, it's often small firms and solo lawyers that are more likely to conduct ethical misconduct than their large firm counterparts. Cummings points out that those who break the rules are not doing so out of nefarious reasons, but often due to a lack of support, intense pressure, or simply not understanding the ethical boundaries. It is precisely this lack of support for lawyers that I find intriguing. How can we generate excellent lawyers and then hold them to the highest possible standard when they are not being adequately supported? The problems facing the lack of support of the legal profession can be likened to those of the cobbler's children. The conundrum of the cobbler's children comes from the phrase, the cobbler's children go barefoot, or the cobbler's children are the worst shod, and its essential meaning is that often those closest to a person does not benefit from the person's expertise. This saying can be traced as far back as the Bible, Luke 23. Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done at Capernaum, do also here in thine own country. And then again in 1546. But who is worse shod than the shoemaker's wife, with shops full of new shapen shoes all her life? To summarise, with all that lawyers do, whether it's advising, representing in court, pro bono work, or simply supporting others through the complexities of the law, where is the support for lawyers? Cummings and Rode express how plenty of support can take various forms. Infrastructure, mental health, insurance, education, whistleblowing protections, amongst other things. So I'll just talk a little bit about potential whistleblowing protections. In terms of whistleblowing in itself, one might think that the lawyer is in the best possible position to do so, as the validity of most claims hinges on legality. However, things get more complicated if, 
say a lawyer working for his or her own organization, is then asked to give advice to a corporate client concerning potentially illegal matters. Paul Moore, a former barrister who was sacked as head of regulatory risk at HBOS, after he expressed, quote, concern about the excessive risks the operation was taking, admits to not knowing what a lawyer's duties are in this case. Furthermore, just as the problems arise when lawyers are regulating lawyers, the same can be said for whistleblowers in the legal profession. Rhodes states that when a lawyer observes another's ethical conduct, many are reluctant to actually report any misconduct at all, as they often believe that the bar disciplinary process won't be very responsive. There is truth in this belief. Less than 5% of complaints will result in public discipline. The disciplinary process is also slow, with inadequate sanctions to deter any real abuse. Additionally, one of course needs to weed out the quote-unquote real complaints from the ones which are merely brought forward because a client is unhappy with the results or because another unhappy lawyer wants to retaliate if the case did not turn out in his or her favour. Rode then notes how it has been evidenced that independent and public oversight institutions perform better than those run by the bar, such as in the UK and Australia where the bar shares authority with the public. Cummings then points out that the reason whistleblowing protections for lawyers are so important is because lawyers often have unique insight into the legal profession, for example, working in the same firm. However, further barriers such as the ambiguity of ethical rules will cause lawyers to hesitate from reporting unethical behaviour. And now the huge deterrent to reporting unethical conduct is the superiority of the lawyer. A subordinate lawyer or trainee will most certainly not report on unethical conduct in fear of losing their position at the firm especially if it's concerning a higher-ranking lawyer. On the other hand, there is an uneven distribution of whistleblower protections across the bar, with strong protections against associates getting fired, but not for partners. More research into legal ethics is finally being conducted, including behavioural research into the way organisation settings, cultures and practices may be unwittingly fostering unethical conduct. However, plenty of questions remain. For example, how can we best reorganise practical structures to minimise the cognitive and emotional strains that situations place on our moral commitments and practical judgement? This was brought forward by Lubin and Wendell in 2017. When it comes to the actual teaching of legal ethics, T.W. Eldred found when teaching behavioural legal ethics as a core element of professional responsibility, one of the most successful ways of keeping students engaged and attentive was through the extensive use of multimedia, the use of interactive technology, for example, extra credit blog, and even through simulations. Rode mentions malpractice insurance as not only being another element of support for lawyers, but also an incentive for lawyers to avoid malpractice. Malpractice insurance is an example of professional liability insurance and, in this case, protects legal professionals against clients who file suit against them due to, for example, negligence. It can cover real or perceived failure to provide professional services. Alternative methods of support suggested by Rode was, for example, ticker systems that alert lawyers when deadlines are coming up, or another kind of system that can help when a lawyer is receiving multiple calls at the same time. Now, something that's very close to my heart is the mental health perspective. Perhaps even more importantly, Deborah noticed that the large percentage of problems arise from lawyers' substance abuse or mental health problems. A quick search on statistics showed that more than 60% of lawyers reported anxiety issues 36% have struggled with problematic drinking, 45% of lawyers have suffered from depression, and 11% of lawyers reported having suicidal thoughts. It's no secret that the legal profession has mental health problems, and while support for lawyers does exist, uh, for example, organisations such as Law Care, Lawyers with Depression, Lawyer Wellness and Personal Support, the stigma behind mental health pervades. 
Further research shows that many issues tend to be structural, with wider reform potentially being necessary, as well as cultural such as unhealthy internal competition and alienating corporate cultures. Quote, Lawyers consistently rate in the top two occupations with the highest prevalence of mental health problems, yet real help is far and few between. As said by the American National Task Force on Lawyer Wellbeing, to be a good lawyer, one has to be a healthy lawyer. In conclusion, when I was doing my LLB at the University of Warwick, we did not study legal ethics. Indeed, I believe not many universities do, and it's only recently becoming a compulsory subject in a select few law school curricula. The only training, if you can even call it that, I received was by my taught law professor, Professor Paul Raffield, who in his last lecture to my year group told us something along the lines of, regardless what kind of law you practice, or what type of lawyer you become, always remember that the law is about the people. Never forget that. That has become my own personal mantra ever since, yet I still wish for legal ethics to have more prominence in law school classrooms. From lawyer to lawyer, I've realised the fundamental importance of supporting our fellow lawyers and legal professionals, be it either through infrastructure, insurance, whistleblowing protections or mental health, in order for lawyers and legal professionals to perform to the best of their capability in a healthy environment. In her article about international legal ethics, Rode recognises how globalisation has transformed the entire legal landscape in a significantly short span of time and maintains that the, quote, Growth of international legal ethics has reflected not only changes in legal practice, but also changes in the community of legal ethicists. As the world changed, so did we. Legal ethics goes so much further than what is merely written down in a handbook of rules. It's about our duty to society at large, our role in the functioning of the democratic system, and our responsibility in upholding the rule of law. And there you have it. I hope that gave you all some food for thoughts, perhaps especially those of you that are currently studying or practicing law. And while we're at the end of the episode, I feel like I should briefly explain my absence, besides from my own personal goals. The episodes that I have lined up have been written or are still being written, but my problem is is that I end up writing pages and pages of notes. For a quote-unquote short episode, I ended up writing over 10 pages worth of notes and then obviously I've had to condense this down to at least three or four, um, which takes almost as much time as the actual note-taking. I've come to realise that this method is certainly not sustainable for future podcast episodes, so I'm going to be restricting my topics to uh, quite a considerable extent. You know, originally I wanted these episodes to be about maximum 10 minutes long, and I know that one of the treaty slash convention ones that I ended up doing was about 20 minutes because of my incapability to stop writing and researching. So hence my prolonged absence from actually being able to record, edit and upload. Hopefully now that I've had this revelation, we can commence on more regular uploading. Thank you for your patience. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Please feel free to shoot me an email should you have any particular topic you want to hear more about at the reasonable podcast at gmail.com. Until next time. Bye.